Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 150 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we'll be giving you mysterious updates on the mysteries we've been covering on the show. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Since Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World began, we've covered a lot of fascinating mysteries. But Jimmy's always doing research, and today... For our 150th episode, we'll be updating you on the things that Jimmy's learned since we originally covered these fascinating topics. And we're going to be telling you more about transhumanism, Bigfoot, the Great Pyramid, the JFK assassination, the simulation hypothesis, weight loss, Dyatlov Pass, Skinwalker Ranch, the Navy UFO program, and more. So what's Jimmy learned about these and other subjects? What has been discovered about them, and what new facts and theories are there? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, why are we doing this episode? Well, for our 100th episode, we did a special celebration where we updated people on the stories that we'd previously covered. But as we said, I'm always doing research, and new things get discovered and published all the time. So, it makes sense to let people know what's been going on with the mysteries we've talked about. I decided with our 150th episode coming up that this would be a good time to revisit our former topics and provide the listeners with updates. In fact, I plan to do this every 50 episodes, which means essentially that we'll do an update episode every year. So we'll be doing this again for our 200th episode, our 250th episode, and so on. Technically, in a few years, we'll have two update episodes. At the current rate, the first would be in 2027, when we'd have episode 400 in January and episode 450 in December. And then the same thing would happen again every 23 years or so. So the next time it would happen would be in 2050 with episode 1600 in January and episode 1650 in December. But I don't think two updates every 23rd year is too much. <laughs> When you, when our brains get uploaded to the uh, the the simulation, we can continue to do it. <laughs> so, in our updates, will we just be covering the mysteries we've talked about in the previous year? No, that would artificially limit things. It won't matter how long it's been since we've talked about a topic. If there's something new and interesting to report, we want to let you know. So updates can be about any topic we've covered in the show's history all the way back to episode number one. This time, we'll begin with an update on episode number two. Before we get to that first update, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Heather C., Kevin G., Colleen R., Derek F., and James B. 
Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. So visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. All right, Jimmy, our first update is all the way back to episode two, which is quite a while ago at this point, where we talked about transhumanism. So what's new there? The modern transhumanist movement holds that we will be able to shortly make radical improvements in human nature through technology and biotechnology. The upshot is that we'll be able to change human nature so much that humanity will cease to exist in its present form, giving way to new post-human entities. These entities will have a variety of improvements, including massive intellectual upgrades, being able to exclude negative emotions, and potentially transferring themselves into technological rather than biological systems. After we released the episode, I ran across a critique of transhumanism by Susan B. Levine called The Irrationality of Transhumanists. In it, she argues that the transhuman project is far from certain. She points out that there is evidence that some of the things transhumanists want to do to boost our intellects, like stimulating the brain in various ways, actually have limits and trade-offs, suggesting that we may not be able to make the kind of intellectual upgrades they want. She also argues that they are relying on concepts and metaphors about human nature that were popular in the mid-20th century, but that are now outdated or becoming outdated. Her conclusion is, Findings, such as those presented here, strongly support the view that, if we embraced transhumanist aim, not only would we fail to produce post-humanity, but in the attempt, we would likely damage human biology beyond repair. Hope and faith need not be unreasonable, for, with awareness, individuals can use them to fill psychological gaps when a viable outcome they favor is not a foregone conclusion. In transhumanist case, however, faith and hope, which in any case they reject as pillars of their confidence, would themselves run counter to reason. As it turns out, the sole irrational parties to the scientific debate over radical bioenhancement may be transhumanists themselves. Levine's article is a challenging read for someone who doesn't follow these issues, but if you want an intelligent critique of transhumanism, it's a good starting point. We'll have a link to it so you can read it for yourself. Also, we'll have a link to her book, Post-Human Bliss, The Failed Promise of Transhumanism, where you can read a more sustained critique. So then our next episode is from the very next episode, number three, where we talked about Bigfoot. So what's new at Bigfoot? There's never a shortage of Bigfoot news, so this will probably be a regular segment in future Mysterious Update shows. Also, as the show has matured, we've gotten better at making it, and I plan to go back and revisit some of the topics we did early on. So we'll probably have a, another future episode devoted to Bigfoot. This time, I'd like to report on several stories regarding Bigfoot. First, there's a pair of articles dealing with the anthropologist Grover Krantz. 
he's passed on now, but when he was alive, he argued that we have better scientific evidence for Bigfoot than is commonly supposed. For example, he studied casts that were made of Sasquatch footprints, and using his knowledge of bone structure as a physical anthropologist, he concluded that some of them had been made by a crippled individual and that it was not a fake set of prints. According to an article on MysteriousUniverse.org, If the Bosberg tracks of the crippled individual were made by a hoaxer, there are several considerations. One is that he had to know human anatomy with great detail. He had to be able to devise distortions of the anatomy, and he had to calculate exactly how an enlarged individual would have to be constructed in order to walk properly. That requires an elaboration of thought and knowledge that I don't think anyone in the world has. The anthropologist often stated in interviews over the years that anyone perpetrating such a hoax would require a greater knowledge of human anatomy than he did, which for Krantz was the only thing that really seemed impossible with regard to the Sasquatch situation. Krantz also studied the famous Patterson-Gimlin film and concluded that the Bigfoot in it is not a man in a costume. We'll have a link to the pair of articles so that you can read them for yourselves. For the existence of Bigfoot to ever be recognized scientifically, though, we need to find the body of one. This is what is known as a voucher specimen, and for an animal or plant to be considered scientifically confirmed, a voucher specimen is a must. Unfortunately, we don't have a voucher specimen for Bigfoot, and one of the biggest objections to their existence is why we haven't ever found a body or even their bones. Correct, and we'll have a link to an article discussing that issue. It reports cases of people who have allegedly seen Sasquatches burying their dead, which would make it harder for us to find them. On the other hand, the article also describes people who did find and even retrieve Bigfoot bodies, some of which were reportedly given to academic institutions to study. Yet, None of these can be found and examined today, leading some to suggest a sinister cover-up for reasons. On the other hand, if you can't just find a dead Bigfoot, you might want to make one. That is, you might want to go hunting and make a dead Bigfoot. That's why in January 2021, an Oklahoma state representative proposed a bill to designate an official Bigfoot hunting season in the state which would also help bring money to his district through hunting licenses, lodge rentals, and so forth. He quickly got pushback, and they started working to amend the bill so that it wouldn't authorize killing a Bigfoot, but instead capturing one alive. What do you think of those two options? I'm uncomfortable with both. Some reports of Bigfoot suggest that it might be so close to human that I'm not comfortable saying it could be killed. It's also apparently an endangered species if it exists. Uh, it's uncommon enough that we haven't been able to scientifically confirm it even exists despite all the reports. So you don't want to be killing off their breeding population. On the other hand, catching one alive sounds like a very dangerous task, as these things are reported to be very powerful. In any event, we'll have a link so that you can read about the Oklahoma lawmakers' efforts. I just picture a bunch of guys in pickup trucks <laughs> heading out at dawn to go hunt on Bigfoot. With a big net, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a bad idea. So our next episode is from episode six, where we talked about the pyramids of Egypt. What's new in Egypt? 
There's a guy named Matthew Sibson who runs a channel on YouTube called Ancient Architects. Mr. Sibson has roots in the alternative archaeology community, which means he's been open to and has argued for many ideas that are not accepted in mainstream respectable archaeology, including a bunch of theories that Egyptologists flat out reject, like the idea that the Great Pyramid of Khufu is thousands of years earlier than the reign of Khufu when it was originally constructed, like 10,000 BC or something, and that it was a giant water pump and other unlikely concepts. For a long time, I've been keeping up with Simpson's channel because it's interesting and because I keep an eye on alternative archaeology, in part because of Mysterious World. I think alternative archaeologists might occasionally have an idea that mainstream archaeology needs to consider, but the odds are that on any given topic, mainstream archaeology is much more likely to be right. What I appreciate about Mr. Sibson is that he is genuinely open-minded and willing to consider evidence from mainstream Egyptology. He's even willing to revise and reverse his former views as he gets new evidence and considers new arguments. And over the last year or so, I've watched as he's moved closer and closer to mainstream Egyptology. So kudos to him for being willing to change his mind in response to evidence. He also is a very careful thinker who looks at issues from multiple angles, which I also appreciate. You know, that's part of what we do here on Mysterious World. And he does have some proposals that go beyond what mainstream Egyptologists have concluded, but at least now they fit into the framework of mainstream Egyptology. And like any proposal, the arguments and evidence he provides for them need to be carefully considered. And so why are we bringing him up for this episode? I wanted to let the listeners know about him because he did a recent 90-minute documentary where he presents his current conclusions about the Great Pyramid. He offers a good summary of the evidence that it was constructed in the reign of Khufu, just as mainstream Egyptology holds, and that it was built to be Khufu's tomb. And this is especially noteworthy as he's making the case for this mainstream position as a guy who formerly held all kinds of alternative views about it. What's also interesting are the theories about how the pyramid was built. And I don't mean using exotic technology or anything like that. What kind of theories are he proposing? Well, he's got some interesting thoughts about the construction process. For example, it's long been a puzzle why the Great Pyramid contains three apparent burial chambers. One, which is located below ground, appears to be unfinished, like they just gave up while they were making it. Another that's partway up the pyramid is known as the Queen's Chamber, though we have no indication that a queen or anyone else was ever buried there. And the third, the highest one in the pyramid, is larger, and it does contain a stone casing to hold a sarcophagus, and it's known as the King's Chamber. Sibson's proposal is that the Great Pyramid was built in stages during Khufu's reign, and that the underground chamber and the Queen's Chamber were backup burial sites in case Hufu didn't live long enough, since kings never know when they're going to die. If Hufu died early, they would have used the underground chamber, and that actually was the normal practice with pyramids to put the king below ground. But once Hufu survived long enough for the queen's chamber to be built, they realized they wouldn't need the underground one, and so they just stopped working on it. 
Then, when they built the structure up to the level of the king's chamber, they realized they wouldn't need the queen's chamber either. Hmm. Does he have any other new proposals? Another interesting thing, and I think his theory about the uh, the barrow chambers is is very interesting and could well be right. Another one I'm less sure about, though, is he proposes another aspect of how the pyramid was constructed. One of the interesting things about the Queen's Chamber is that it has these tiny shafts leading up and away from it. They're sometimes called air shafts, although they weren't air shafts because they were sealed in antiquity when the Queen's Chamber was built. So you couldn't even see them from inside the Queen's Chamber. The King's Chamber has similar ones, and the ones from the King's Chamber go all the way to the surface of the pyramid. But, I mean, you can like, blow smoke through them and it'll come out. That doesn't happen with the ones from the Queen's Chamber. They go, they kind of twist around and go up a certain way, but then they stop short of the surface. Sibson proposes that this could be explained if the pyramid was supplemented and enlarged so that the Queen's Chamber shafts do go to the original surface of the pyramid, but then when they expanded the pyramid to make it taller... They didn't go further. These ideas, of course, are not considered established by mainstream Egyptologists, but they deserve consideration and will have a link to where you can watch his documentary on YouTube. Since the documentary was released, he's also continued to update with new information based on new discoveries in Egypt. His documentary is still quite new. So what kind of discoveries have come out since he released it? When modern archaeologists started going through the pyramid, they found almost nothing inside of it. You know, everything in the pyramid seemed to have been looted in antiquity. But the shafts coming off the queen's chamber, as we said, were sealed when the chamber was completed. And inside one of them, archaeologists found three objects, a metal hook, a stone ball used to pound rock into shape, and a piece of wood, which may have been the handle for the metal hook. Unfortunately, the wood was lost for more than 70 years, and that's a pity. I mean, they like shipped it off to England to a museum, and it got lost. But it's a pity because it was sealed inside the Queen's Chamber shaft since the pyramid was constructed. And if we had it and could carbon date it, That would reveal whether the pyramid was built 5,000 years ago, like mainstream Egyptology claims, or more than 10,000 years ago, as many alternative archaeology fans have claimed. Well, last year, the piece of wood was rediscovered, and it's been carbon dated. Overall, the evidence supports the view that the pyramid was built during the reign of Khufu, as the wood is around 5,000 years old, not 10,000. But it's a few centuries older than we would expect. That could mean that the wood had been cut from a very old tree, or it could mean that it was cut a few centuries before Khufu and had been used and possibly repurposed during that time, which is not unlikely as wood is hard to come by in Egypt and often had to be imported from Lebanon, you know, the famous cedars of Lebanon we hear about in the Bible. Or it could mean that there's a mismatch of up to a few centuries between the timeline of the Old Kingdom, as scholars have reconstructed it from literary sources, and when the events of that timeline actually happened. Scholars are still thinking about the newly rediscovered wood and the implications it may have, but we'll also have links to where Sibson discusses it and the options it presents. So from uh, the 
death of an ancient ruler to the death of a more modern ruler. Our next Ooh, up- update is nice on... segue. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Our next update is on episode 15, where we did talk about the JFK assassination. So what's new there? In episode 15, we only gave an overview of the assassination, and I offered a preliminary assessment that there is evidence both for Lee Harvey Oswald being a lone assassin and that there was a conspiracy of which Oswald may or may not have been a part. My, or at least the shooter, my conclusion was that people are not crazy or unreasonable, regardless of which of those options they support, because there is genuinely evidence pointing in more than one direction. And I promised that we'd revisit the JFK assassination in the future and look at more aspects of it and theories about it, and we will. One theory we'll be looking at is the subject of a new book by two authors. One is Jan Mihai Pachepa, if I'm pronouncing his name right, it's Romanian, who was the highest-ranking Soviet bloc intelligence official ever to defect to the United States. The other author is former CIA director James Woolsey. And the book is called Operation Dragon, Inside the Kremlin's Secret War on America. According to them, there was a conspiracy. Oswald was involved, and he was given orders that came from Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev to kill Kennedy. To have a former CIA director and a former top Soviet bloc intelligence official saying that Oswald really was on a mission for the Russians is noteworthy, and we'll definitely be looking at the claim and the evidence regarding it in a future episode. So people in the intelligence community lie a lot, professionally. So should we trust what a former CIA director has to say? Interestingly, when I mentioned this online, a number of people immediately said you can't trust what a former CIA director would say. And I agree that the CIA does lie, as do other intelligence agencies, as we've repeatedly discussed on the show. However, they don't always lie. Sometimes they tell the truth. And so we need to do what we always do on this show and look at the evidence. So that's what we'll be doing. Awesome. Looking forward to that. So our next update is on episode 17, where we talked about the simulation hypothesis. What's new there? One of the science channels I follow on YouTube is Fermilab, and one of my favorite presenters from there is Dr. Don Lincoln. During the COVID lockdowns last year, he did a series of short, easy-to-understand videos from his home, which were called Subatomic Stories. In one episode, he offered a critique from a physics perspective of the idea that the universe we're living in might be a computer simulation. He discusses several experiments that scientists, including those at Fermilab, have done that could reveal whether we're living in a simulation or not, as well as why they would reveal if we're living in a simulation. So he discusses why these experiments would show that. His conclusion is that so far, none of the tests reveal evidence that our universe is a simulation and that scientifically speaking, as opposed to philosophically speaking, but scientifically speaking, the proposal may not be dead, but is, in his words, on life support. His video is short and very easy to understand for a physics video, so I hope you'll check it out. So uh, next, we're going to be talking about uh, the topic from episode 21, where we discuss the mystery of weight loss. In this episode, we discussed various aspects of weight loss and what finally allowed me to break through a decade-long plateau, which was intermittent fasting. 
My doctor recommended intermittent fasting to me, and it's improved both my weight and my health. It's got a bunch of benefits, and it's surprisingly easy to do. When I started, I was amazed that I wasn't hungry all the time, but I wasn't, and it was amazingly easy. One of the things that helped convince me to try it was a set of videos by a Canadian doctor named Jason Fung. He's been one of the leaders in popularizing intermittent fasting. The thing is, intermittent fasting isn't just good for weight loss. It's also good for dealing with diabetes, and it's good for preventing and treating cancer. Dr. Fung now has books on each of these, so we'll have links to them in case you have concerns about obesity, diabetes, or about getting or treating cancer. So be sure to check them out. So we're going to be talking about from episode 24, where we talked about the Dyatlov Pass incident. The Dyatlov Pass incident occurred in 1959 when a group of expert Russian hikers died under mysterious circumstances. There are many theories about what happened to them, but none has fit with all the evidence. The event is so controversial that Dyatlov Pass is on the same scale of controversy as the JFK assassination is in America. Last summer, the Russian government concluded an investigation into the matter and argued that the group had been forced out of their tent by an avalanche. More recently, a scientific paper here in the West came to a similar conclusion, suggesting that it was a type of avalanche known as a slab avalanche. However, some of the victims' families vigorously disagree and maintain that the deaths were connected with a Soviet rocket. So we'll have links to stories about all this and the new scientific paper. All right. In episode 27, we talked about near-death experiences. Something new there? One of the big questions about near-death experiences or NDEs is whether they are just an illusion created by the dying brain or whether they are genuine experiences pointing to survival beyond death. If it can be shown that people experiencing an NDE come back with knowledge they would not otherwise have had, that's evidence favoring the survival hypothesis. And there is some evidence that this happens. According to an article in Psychology Today, for instance, in a case reported on by hospice physician John Lerma, 2007, an 82-year-old man had an NDE in which he floated out of his body in the hospital trauma room. From a position up above the goings-on there, he saw a quarter sitting on the right-hand corner of the eight-foot-high cardiac monitor, a quarter dating from the year 1985. After he was resuscitated, he asked Lerma to go and check whether the quarter was really there so he could know whether this very affecting spiritual experience was real. Lerma took a ladder and climbed up to look, and there indeed was the 1985 quarter just as the patient had seen it. In another case, this one originally recorded by Kenneth Ring and Madeleine Lawrence, 1993, a patient described having an NDE in which she was pulled upward through the floors of the hospital until she came up out of the roof. From there, she noticed a red shoe lying on the roof. A skeptical physician later went onto the roof to check and indeed discovered the red shoe she described. We'll have a link to the article so you can read it for yourself, and we'll also have a link to the book that the article is summarizing so you can read even more about these types of reports and what they may tell us about survival after death. I hope I just never have to see the frisbee on the roof that my kids left there, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So the next one is a is a big one for me because I love this this episode and a lot of uh, listeners do, too. Episode 36. What's new at Skinwalker Ranch? Skinwalker Ranch is a location in Utah where a lot of really strange phenomena have been reported. It's also been the subject of more than one scientific investigation. Since our original episode released, Skinwalker Ranch has definitely been in the news and will have links to several articles. One is an interview with Robert Bigelow, who is the former owner of the ranch and who commissioned the first investigation of it, back which we talked about in episode 36. We've also learned since then that the predecessor of the Navy's UFO program, ATIP, it was a program called AWSAP, was part of the Bigelow investigation. Also, not everyone who worked on the investigation is happy. Two gentlemen who worked on it have said that they may have been subject to a form of medical testing without their consent, and they may sue. This apparently consisted of them being exposed to the strange phenomena at the ranch and then medically testing them afterwards. That could be entirely innocent if they were just tested to make sure they were okay, but it would take on a different cast if they were deliberately exposed to some of the weird stuff and then tested to see what effects it had. The latter could be considered unauthorized human experimentation. So among the stuff that uh, Strange Phenomena reported at Skinwalker Ranch were some really unusual animals. Do we have any updates on those? One of the strange creatures that we talked about in the episode was reported to look like a sort of red hyena with a huge fox-like tail, a head like a dog, boar-like legs, and it looked like it weighed around 200 pounds and was harassing the horses on the ranch. I got a Facebook message from a listener named David, and he wondered whether the animal may have been a crin wolf, also known as a maned wolf. Crin wolves are native to South America, but it's hypothetically possible one could have ended up in Utah, for example, if it escaped from a zoo or a private menagerie. Crin wolves do look like weird, unusually tall dogs. They're red and have long fox-like tails. I don't know if I'd describe their legs as boar-like, but they are dark-colored, and they're really long, making the animal look unusually tall for a canine. They also have dog-like faces and big ears, and they grow large, up to 75 pounds. That's not 200 pounds, but if you're seeing an unusually large, tall canine at a distance, you might overestimate how much it weighs. They also have an interesting call, which is described as a roar bark. And here's what it sounds like. I don't know if what they reported seeing at the ranch was a crin wolf or not, but I think it's an interesting idea and we'll have links to pictures and video so that you can see and hear a crin wolf as well as read about it for yourself. Finally, the new owner of the ranch, Brandon Fugal, oversaw a new investigation and they made it into a History Channel documentary series, which we'll have a link to. Awesome. I did watch that series myself and it was it uh-huh. was interesting and good. And they did kind of promise to have a second season, although whatever the pandemic has done to those plans, I don't know. But uh, I'm looking forward yeah. to hearing more about that. So our next update is from episode 38, where we talked about the Golden State Killer. Since we originally reported on the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, 
there have been notable developments. D'Angelo was the first serial killer to be caught using a public DNA database to identify one of his relatives and then track him down. Subsequently, other killers have been caught using variations of this method, and D'Angelo himself is now behind bars for the rest of his life. To avoid a lengthy trial, D'Angelo was willing to confess to his crimes in exchange for avoiding the death penalty. This was broadly supported by the survivors and their families, many of whom did not want a lengthy trial given how elderly many of those who would need to testify are. Here's an abridged set of clips of D'Angelo confessing to his crimes. Jane Doe number 50 was able to untie her bindings and untie her boyfriend's bindings and call for help. D'Angelo took John Doe's office and house keys along with money. Thank you, Counsel. You wish you bear it as to incidents 73 and 74. No, yeah. Regarding the uncharged offense of kidnapping to commit robbery of Jane Doe number 50, having occurred April 4th, 1979, in the county of Alameda, a violation of Penal Code Section 209, do you admit or deny that? Uh, I admit. Regarding the uncharged offense of rape of Jane Doe number 50, having occurred on April 4th, 1979, in the county of Alameda, a violation of Penal Code Section 261, do you admit or deny that? I admit. Regarding the uncharged offense of false imprisonment of Jane Doe number 50 and John Doe number 22 having occurred April 4th, 1979, the County of Alameda, a violation of Penal Code Section 236, do you admit or deny? I admit. Court finds the admissions were voluntary uh, and with the understanding of the nature of the uncharged crimes as well as the consequences of the admissions, the people accept the admissions as stated on the record? Yes, Your Honor. Court accepts the admissions as stated on the record. Is there anything else in terms of Alameda charges? No, Your Honor. All right. Thank you, Counsel. The court does find all the pleas and the, all the admissions were voluntary, knowing, and intelligently made, and the court does accept all the pleas and admissions. This matter is set for judgment and sentencing starting the week, I believe, of August 17th of 2020. And that hearing took place. D'Angelo's attorneys read some letters from his family, and then D'Angelo himself got up and responded to the statements that he had heard from the victims and, the, and their relatives, and he had this to say. Mr. D'Angelo would like to make a brief statement. I've listened all your statements, each one of them, and I'm really sorry to everyone I've heard. Thank you, Your Honor. One of the things you may notice is how different D'Angelo sounds compared to the way he has sounded recently since his arrest. People who knew him, I mean, his neighbors before his arrest, reported that despite his age, he was really vigorous. Even though he was in his 70s, he was like a 50-year-old. And he was very physically active and very not frail at all. And then once he got taken into custody, he suddenly started speaking with this much more frail voice and so forth. And he also started appearing in a wheelchair. 
Well, many people thought that this was just a ruse on his part to try to appear frailer than he is and gain sympathy. And that seems confirmed by this. If you watch the video that we'll also have a link to, he stands up straight as a ramrod out of that wheelchair and delivers this statement in a much more assertive voice. So now that he knows what's going to happen to him, he seems to have stopped trying to feign injury or frailness in an attempt to gain sympathy. The judge then departed from his usual procedure, and instead of just pronouncing sentence on D'Angelo, he had this to say first. I have considered the comments of counsel, the facts in this case, as well as well as the overall circumstances of this disposition. I've considered the defendant's age, the fact there are inmates currently on death row and have been so for 30 years. I have considered the fact that there is currently a moratorium on the death penalty in California. Furthermore, this disposition does give survivors and their loved ones an opportunity to have their words heard and not to endure the imaginable, imaginable emotions uh, that they would experience by sitting through such a trial. Finally, with this resolution, the California taxpayers have been saved tens of millions of dollars. For the reasons stated, the court approves of this plea. However, the court is not saying that Mr. D'Angelo does not deserve to have the death penalty imposed. It merely means the court feels it would never come to pass. In truth, all the parties should be commended in reaching this resolution. For the result of this trial and a plea of guilty is the same. Mr. D'Angelo will spend the rest of his natural life and ultimately meet his death and find in the, in the, behind the walls of a state penitentiary. I generally don't make comments at sentencing, but I am going to uh, make an exception. Having approved this plea, I will now move on to the imposition of sentence. Mr. D'Angelo, I've listened for the last three days from the people you've terrorized and their friends and their family. Their impact statement will always be with me. I was moved by their courage, their grace, their strength, all qualities you clearly lack. I know whatever words I say today will pale in comparison to the words the survivors have spoken. They need to be said. The fundamental principle of law that justice delayed is justice denied is no truer than in this case. But for the dogged persistence and perseverance of law enforcement, their survivors, their families, and citizen detectives, this case may have resolved, remained unsolved. There are many heroes like Carol Daly, Paul Holes, Michelle McNamara, and many heroes that I don't even know that brought this day here. And I have little doubt but for the tenacity and unwavering quest for justice exhibited by Sacramento District Attorney's Office, Emory Schubert, you may have escaped earthly justice altogether. If I listened to the survivors and I've watched you, I could not help but wondering, what are you thinking? Are you capable of comprehending the pain and anguish you have caused? To quote the great American novelist and California native John Steinbeck, to a man born without a conscience, a soul-stricken man must seem ridiculous. To a criminal, honesty is foolish. You must not forget that a monster is merely a variation, and that to a monster, the norm is monstrous. 
Mr. Steinbeck seems to think that monsters are born and not created. I'm not so sure, but one thing I do know, when a person commits monstrous acts, they need to be locked away where they can never harm another innocent person. It is my sincere hope that with the opportunity to be heard these last few days and the sentence to be imposed, survivors, the survivors will find some resolution, will find some peace, and hopefully find some justice, however imperfect. Mr. D'Angelo, I sentence you to the following. It's nice in there that he name checks people like Paul Holes, who is a detective that worked the case for a long time, and also Michelle McNamara, who as a amateur investigator also helped push the case forward and bring a lot of attention to it. And in fact, she was the one who coined the term Golden State Killer. So but she didn't survive to see him caught. She she died accidentally in her sleep from a combination of medicines that she was on. And so even though she didn't make it to see him captured, she almost did. And her book brought a lot of attention to this case, including what got me on it first and led to our previous episode on the Golden State Killer. And it's nice to see her getting acknowledgement here from the judge. The judge then went on to sentence Joseph D'Angelo for his crimes. He gave him 11 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, as well as an additional life sentence that for technical reasons did have the possibility of parole, as well as eight years for other crimes. But with those 11 consecutive no paroles, he is going to spend the rest of his life in jail and will die in jail for his crimes. So goodbye, Joseph D'Angelo. They've locked you up and thrown away the key. And good riddance, I only wish you'd been caught sooner. Amen. Okay, so our next update is from episodes 41 and 70, where we talked about ATIP, the Navy's UFO investigation project. There's been a lot coming out on this, and we won't be able to cover it all here. We'll need to do at least one future episode about it. However, since we originally talked about this story, there have been a couple of seasons of a TV series called Unidentified that were hosted by former ATIP official Luis Elizondo, and we'll have a link to those where you can watch them on Amazon. One of the theories they discuss on the show is whether the UFOs that ATIP investigated, like the one from the famous Tic Tac incident here off the coast of San Diego, might involve secret U.S. aircraft that were being tested around a U.S. Navy battle group to see what the reaction would be. In Unidentified, they conveyed the impression that this was unlikely to be the case, but they couldn't really get anybody to comment directly on it. You know, they got a bunch of, well, I can't really talk about that kind of responses. However, I was watching a YouTube interview in which the parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove was interviewing Dr. Paul Smith. Paul Smith is one of the government's psychic spies from the Stargate remote viewing project that we talked about in episodes 102 and 103. And he's also, in addition to that work, done a bunch of other things in the military. And Smith did offer an explanation for why you wouldn't normally be testing a classified system like this around a battle group. Here's the relevant part of the interview with Mishlove and Smith. What if this were a secret Air Force project and the Air Force thought they'd spring it on the Navy to see how the Navy would respond to it? I, uh, have have worked in those those levels that atmosphere at one time or another not specifically with the navy but i've had access to a lot of the sensor systems uh, one of the jobs i had was actually at the strategic level national level uh on sensor platforms and stuff and and 
I've known quite a bit about, you know, special access projects and, and, and things where, uh, one arm of the government may not necessarily be aware of what another arm of the well, military is up to. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's always a reasonable speculation, but the fact is the way it works, uh, they don't do it that way. And, and there's good reasons for that. So for example, what if the Navy decided to try and shoot this thing down? <laughs> Right. <laughs> that would have been very awkward as far as the Air Force uh, was concerned. But almost always when you have test flights of um, highly classified systems, you you don't tell people who might be, you know, other military uh, elements that might be in the vicinity. You don't tell them what it is you're doing. But there are, there are uh, various restrictions that you level and say you can't be there at this time. You can't do this, or that. Uh, as far as wanting to test the reactions of the Navy, they wouldn't do it that way. Again, partly because of the reason of the, there's too much danger of there being some kind of collateral damage. But the other case is the, the Navy isn't the only ones that are monitoring those. You've got uh, Russian satellites. You've got Russian electronic warfare ships. You've got Russian submarines. You've got the Chinese. You've got all these people who may or may not be monitoring that particular carrier group. And those guys are going to have all their stuff up, too. And so if you just test the Navy and fly one of these things by, then then you're revealing capabilities to the bad guys that you don't want them to know you know. Or I say bad guys are our opponents or whatever, our, our competitors. That's probably a better. Our competitors, it yeah. seems to be the word of choice these days. Yeah, I think that's a good word. So competitors, you're revealing your secrets to them, and that's not a good idea, Right. You're, you're showing them capabilities you might have. Usually when they test these kind of things, they do it in a relatively closed environment. They may have all of the same sensors for an Aegis age, um, uh, system on land base at like Area 51 or whatever in an area where the Russians or the Chinese aren't going to be able to pick up on the signatures of the different systems and how re they react to your new technology. You do it in a in a protected environment. That's how they do it. They don't go test it on other branches of the military. So uh, I, I don't think that's a very likely scenario at all. So Paul Smith thinks it's unlikely that the Tic Tac was a classified American program that the Navy battle group just didn't know about. All right. Our next update is from episode 59, where we talked about those very interesting mind control parasites. One of the things scientists are currently studying is the human microbiome. Your microbiome is the set of microscopic organisms that live on you or inside you. Many of these live in our gut. There are gut bacteria. Some of these are parasites, but others don't do us any harm, and some are actually beneficial. And they can have a big impact on our health, including our mental health. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, up near Udom, mm -hmm. there's a small startup company called Holobiome, which is trying to figure out how to use our microbiomes to treat mental conditions. They call these psychoactive microbes our psychobiome, and they hope to start doing human trials within a year. According to an article at sciencemag.org, Although the mechanisms remain elusive, Animal studies by Cryan and others have bolstered the idea that gut microbes can influence the brain. Rats and mice given fecal transplants from people with Parkinson's, schizophrenia, autism, or depression often develop the rodent equivalents of these problems. Conversely, giving those animals fecal transplants from healthy people 
sometimes relieves their symptoms. The presence or absence of certain microbes in young mice affects how the mice respond to stress as adults, and other mouse studies have pointed to a role for microbes in the development of the nervous system. Now, they're wanting to test what they've been finding on human volunteers, and they say that the volunteers are eager and that they get emails from depressed people almost every day. However, microbial therapies won't necessarily meet the same standards of efficacy as regular drugs. To be marketed as a pharmaceutical, a treatment has to pass muster with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or its equivalent in other countries, through clinical trials that prove its effectiveness against specific diseases. Most microbiome treatments so far are marketed as probiotics, for which regulatory thresholds are lower, at least in the United States, as are limits on the health claims that a manufacturer can make. Holobiome is developing both types of products. The microbiome and the psychobiome is a frontier area in science, and so we'll have to wait and see what potential treatments develop and how safe and effective they are. In the meantime, we'll have a link to the article so you can read it for yourself. So our next update is from episode 73, where we talked about the mysterious death of Somerton Man. Somerton Man was an individual who was found dead on Somerton Beach in South Australia. He had no obvious cause of death, and the authorities suspected he had been poisoned. Subsequent details of the case also suggested he may have been a spy who either was killed or committed suicide, possibly after being ordered to do so. There are even clues that Somerton Man may have been using a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam as a one-time pad to encrypt or decrypt messages. Until recently, the only images that have been available of Somerton Man were taken after his death. However, recently, one of the computer special effects artists from Star Trek Discovery used software to recreate what Somerton Man would have looked like when he was alive. So we'll have a link and you can see what he came up with and how the living Somerton Man may have looked. So our next update is from episode 83, where we talked about dark matter and dark energy. Dark matter is supposed to be an undiscovered form of matter that is invisible and that only shows its presence by gravity. It's thought to be needed to explain why galaxies rotate the way they do, among other things. Dark energy is supposed to be a force causing the universe to increase the rate at which it's expanding. There's always a lot of new articles coming out about dark matter and dark energy. Uh, these articles are all over the science channels and aggregators I check regularly, so I'm not going to update you every time there's some new unproven proposal about them. But I do want to update you on two things. First, in our original episode, we mentioned that one possibility that has been proposed is that dark matter is actually normal matter in another dimension. Since it's in another dimension, we can't see it, but its gravity could be leaking through to affect things in our dimension. This idea hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but we'll have a link to a news story about the idea that dark matter is basically normal matter made of standard particles that go into an atom, particles known as fermions, only they're in a fifth warped dimension. An alternative to dark matter is the idea that we need to modify our theory of gravity. And I've seen scientists who previously were on Team Dark Matter rethinking this. In light of new discoveries and arguments, they're not as sure about dark matter. The dark matter advocates 
aren't ready to throw in the towel, but I've begun to see more than one of them being cautious and even suggesting that the true solution may involve both dark matter and modified gravity. We'll have a link to a video by the British astrophysicist Dr. Becky, who I think is really cute, by the way, <laughs> where she talks about the new discoveries and how they're affecting things. In episode 98, we talked about the mystery of sleep. So what's new with sleep? We've gotten a bunch of people who thanked us for talking about sleep and how to get more of it. And they've said that the episode really helped. One of the things we talked about in the episode is how different people, at least at different times in their lives, have different sleep patterns. For example, when people are in their teenage years, they naturally fall asleep later at night and wake up later in the morning. It's not that they're lazy, moody teenagers. It's their body's natural sleep schedule really has changed for biological reasons. So it can be counterproductive to try to force them to keep the same sleep schedule they did when they were preteens. One of the things we'll have a link to is a study done in Russia where the researchers looked at a bunch of people and were able to identify six different patterns of daily activity that people naturally fell into. Do they have a, a way of referring to the patterns? Yeah, they called them chronotypes, and they describe which periods of the day you personally are most active and most inactive in. They also discovered that the people who were active in the morning, the early birds, are not the majority of the population which may come as some comfort to those who are most active in the afternoons or evenings and who have always felt pressured by being held to an early bird ideal. In our original episode, we gave a number of tips for good sleep hygiene, things that can help you get better, more consistent sleep. This time we'll have a link to a short video that includes not only tips of this nature, but that also describes a technique developed by the Navy to help people fall asleep fast. Reportedly, when people practice this technique for six weeks, you know, did it every night, 96% of the people who did the training could fall asleep consistently in two minutes or less. And they could do so even when sitting up. So if you'd like to fall asleep faster, you might want to watch the video and practice the technique consistently for at least a couple of months because it does require practice. Finally, here's an email I got from a friend named Eric who I've known for many years. Like you, Jimmy, I've had problems going to sleep or getting back to sleep because of a racing mind. Researchers discovered that people with this kind of insomnia have a frontal lobe brain temperature higher than others. Basically, most people's frontal lobe goes down in temperature when they go to sleep, but some people's doesn't. So they tried lowering the temperature of the frontal lobe about a degree, and they were able to arrest the racing thoughts and enable the people to get back to sleep. They developed a product called EbSleep, which I purchased, and I love it. Basically, it's a band, something like a mask, but it goes on your forehead that's tethered to a cooling system that pumps cool liquid through the band. I used to wake up at 3 a.m. or some other time and had difficulty getting back to, for, to sleep for a couple of hours. This no longer happens since I started using EbSleep over six months ago. I encourage people to check it out. So maybe that's the little doodad that Dr. Crusher puts on your forehead to make you go to sleep. I don't know. <laughs> that's right. In, in, in any event, that's something you might want to try out. So our next update is from episodes 122 and 123 where we talked about the illumination of conscience and the prophecies of Father Michel Rodrigue. 
Over the last few years, Father Rodrigue, he's a Canadian priest, made a series of dramatic predictions about events that would happen before the end of 2020. However, these predictions failed to take place. Some followers of Father Rodrigue have tried to argue that maybe they kind of sort of have partially been fulfilled, but the results have been nothing close to what he claimed would happen. When the predicted fulfillments didn't happen, Father Rodrigue went into seclusion, and today he can only be reached by postal mail. To date, he has not issued any statement on why his prophecies didn't come true. He hasn't said that he was wrong or that they were delayed for some reason, or anything like that. However, he has issued a new prophecy, which he says was given to him on December 31st, 2020. This new prophecy contains dramatic statements about how hard Satan is attacking the church, but it is much more vague than his previous prophecies and does not contain claims that could be verified or falsified with time. To my mind, it's a highly flexible prophecy that can be made to fit or not fit any set of circumstances that you'd like. Bottom line, Father Rodrigue has not fessed up to his failed predictions or to the numerous other factually false and and or delusional claims he appears to have made. But he still has people following him and will be keeping an eye on the situation. All right, next update from our very recent episodes 141 and 142, where we talked about the Georgia Guidestones. In our episode on the Georgia Guidestones, we revealed the identity of the man who was behind the mysterious monument. It was Dr. Herbert Kirsten of Fort Dodge, Iowa. Since the episode released, I discovered an online copy of the obituary of Dr. Kirsten that appeared in a local newspaper. It reads, in part... Dr. Herbert H. Kirsten, 85, passed away on Friday, June 10, 2005, at his home. Funeral services will be held 10 a.m. Tuesday, June 14th, in the chapel of the Lafersweiler Seiwerts Funeral Home and 10.30 a.m. at Corpus Christi Church for a massive Christian burial. Herbert Kirsten was born on May 7, 1920, in Fort Dodge to Anne and Dr. E.M. Kirsten. He graduated from Fort Dodge Senior High and attended University of Notre Dame and the University of Iowa for undergraduate studies. He then graduated from the University of Iowa School of Medicine. He enlisted in the United States Army, where he served during World War II in Charleston, South Carolina, Chicago, the Philippines, and Japan, where he was in charge of a 1,000-bed hospital in Tokyo. After serving in the Army, Dr. Kirsten returned to the United States, where he completed his surgical residencies and joined his father and brothers, John and Paul, in the practice of medicine at the Kirsten Clinic in Fort Dodge. Dr. Kirsten met Cecilia Burke, a nurse at the Kirsten Clinic, and they were married on February 19, 1955, at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Lorville, Iowa. Dr. Kirsten and Mrs. Kirsten have four children. He was an avid bridge player, a former recreational pilot, and a conservationist who loved nature and trees. Everyone who knew him respected his love of his tree farm, Walnut Farms, located west of Fort Dodge. Dr. Kirsten had many hobbies, woodworking, oil and water color painting, bridge, the Republican Party, physics, livestock, and grain farming, and music. He was a naturalist who was very involved in environmental and world population issues. There's more to his obituary, but what we've read is entirely consistent with the picture we developed of Dr. Kirsten in episodes 141 and 142. 
I find it interesting he served in Tokyo at the end of World War II, which would maybe have influenced his thoughts about atomic warfare. Yeah, obviously, well, Tokyo itself wasn't atom bombed, but there would have been a very strong awareness of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Tokyo itself had been basically firebombed to the ground, everything except the area around the Imperial Palace, which we talked about them having the desperate coup in in a previous episode. That's right. Our next update is on episode 148, where we talked about the Australian cryptid drop bears. In this year's April Fool's episode on the Australian drop bear, we told you about a real animal known as the Tasmanian tiger or the Tasmanian wolf. It's kind of a marsupial dog with stripes on its hindquarters, which is why it gets called both a tiger because of the stripes and a wolf because it looks kind of like a dog. It's thought to have gone extinct in the first half of the 20th century, but there are persistent reports that it may still exist, although this hasn't been fully confirmed. That makes the Tasmanian wolf a cryptid, an animal not currently known to exist. Just to show you that animals can move off the cryptid list and be confirmed by science, we'll be sharing some links about a newly rediscovered bird species. It lives in Indonesia, and it's called the black-browed babbler. For the last 170 years, people thought it was extinct. But in 2020, a couple of guys found and caught one, took up-close photographs of it, and released it back into the wild. The evidence they got was enough that now it's considered to once again be officially known to science. And the articles we'll link to have close-up color pictures so you can see the bird for yourself. So, yay, the black-browed babbler is back. Another cryptid confirmed. Could the dodo bird be far behind? (laughs) Not if we start cloning it. (laughs) Right. That's probably the best way to bring that one back. Right. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener on these topics? We'll have a lot of them since this is an update episode. First, we'll have Susan Levine's book, Post-Human Bliss, The Failed Promise of Transhumanism. Also, her article, The Irrationality of Transhumanists. We'll have two articles on that scientific case for the existence of Bigfoot, as well as one on Bigfoot bodies and reports of them, and also hunting Bigfoot in Oklahoma. We'll have the 90-minute documentary on the Great Pyramid from the Ancient Architects channel, which is quite good. You know, check it out. Also, videos announcing the rediscovery of that wood from the Queen's Chamber shaft and another assessing the implications for the Old Kingdom chronology, the dating of Old Kingdom events in Egypt, as well as a University of Aberdeen video on the wood, because that's where they found it. We'll have a link to James Woolsey's book, Operation Dragon, Fermilab's Don Lincoln on the scientific evidence that fails to support the simulation hypothesis, my page on intermittent fasting and how you can get onto it easily without a lot of hunger, and then Dr. Jason Fung's three books, The Obesity Code, The Diabetes Code, and The Cancer Code. We'll also have a link to an article on the Dyatlov Pass family survivors disagreeing with the recent government conclusion, as well as a National Geographic article on the new scientific study done in the West of the Dyatlov Pass incident and a link to the study itself. 
We'll have a link to Psychology Today's article on near-death experiences and the book that it summarized, which I've been reading and is really well done and interesting. The book is called The Self Does Not Die, Verified Paranormal Phenomena from Near-Death Experiences. We'll also, concerning Skinwalker Ranch, have a link to the Robert Bigelow interview, information about the two Skinwalker workers who are not happy about possible medical experimentation on them, an article on Kryn wolves, and a video of a Kryn wolf doing its roar bark. So you can see them, see them moving around and in action and doing their unusual call. We'll also have a link to the Skinwalker Ranch History Channel documentary. Then for the Golden State Killer article, we'll have video of the Golden State Killer sentencing. This is the full video that goes on for a long time, but also has his apology and the final sentencing. We'll have links to the unidentified TV show about the Navy UFO program and the interview that we heard an excerpt from between Jeffrey Mishlove and Paul Smith about why you wouldn't expect a classified aviation system to be sprung on a Navy on a Navy carrier group like this. We'll have a link to an article on how gut bacteria affects how you think, feel, and act. We'll have that computer recreation of Somerton Man as a living individual. Also, that article I mentioned on could dark matter be normal matter in another dimension, and Dr. Becky's video on the new possible evidence against dark matter. We'll have the Russian sleep chronotypes study or an article in English about it, and that video I mentioned on the Navy's fall asleep in two minutes sleep technique, as well as the ebb sleep device that Eric emailed us about. We'll have a link to Father Michelle Rodrigue's December 31st, 2020 prophecy, so you can read it in all its threatening vagueness. (laughs) We'll have a link to Dr. Herbert Kirsten's obituary, articles uh, and articles on the rediscovery of the black-browed babbler with nice pictures of the bird. Awesome. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, since we've been talking a little bit about cryptids and so forth, I thought we'd have a note on British folklore. There's lots of unusual creatures that have been described in British folklore. We'll certainly be talking about them in the future. One is about the famous little people that have been reported. Now, often these are classified as elves or gnomes or things like that, but there's at least some speculation that some, not all, but that in recent centuries, some of the reports of little people may have been reports of baboons, because baboons look kind of like little human beings, and they go crazy and do strange things, but can be trained in some ways to interact with humans. And since Britain had a naval empire, they were bringing exotic animals back on ships and sometimes they got loose. And if they got out into the country, the locals might not not have known, oh, that's called a baboon. And they may have said, I saw a little person and it did this crazy stuff. I'm just picturing that. (laughs) Yeah. Some of them were even like trained circus animals that would get loose and could even mimic human behavior in some ways. Wear clothes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Also, there are other reports from England of wild men and green men and other green creatures. And we'll have a link to another article about those. All right. So... 
that's it from us. What are your theories about all of these mysteries that we've given you updates on in this episode? We want to hear your feedback on what we've talked about. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. Send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Be sure to follow Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube, where you make sure to hit the bell to get notifications of new episodes. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>